There's uh, <laughs> seats in the front up here. Raise your hand if you got a seat beside you, if you will. Hold them up just a little bit longer. <coughs> seat here, seats here. Is this the splash zone? <laughs> There's uh, two more down front if anybody needs. So last week we um, we were working out of one of those uh, texts that I said bothers me a lot, consider it all joy whenever we encounter various trials and troubles. And we suggested that for one, this is a uh, especially taken in the context of the wisdom literature, this is a fascinating text because one of the things wisdom literature does is this sort of notion of if you do good, you get good, and you do bad, you get bad. And that the whole of the New Testament with the, the proclamation of the crucified Messiah is asking deep questions about that. So the Apostle Paul has to sort through this text of cursed is anyone who is hung upon a tree, which kind of flows out of that so-called wisdom or deuteronomistic kind of teaching of if you do bad, you get bad. If you get hung up on a tree, then you must have done something bad. And so Paul has to grapple with this when he comes to encounter Christ on the Damascus Road. And so he develops a whole kind of theology oriented around suffering and the nature of suffering and what it means to suffer in the midst of a world in which the kingdom of God has not yet come in its fullness. We also then kind of move towards uh, the book of James and other sorts of places where suffering is seen not only as this sort of... Uh, theological location of being between the times, between the inbreaking of God's kingdom and its fullness, but also just in the sense of growth and character, that, that there is in fact this sort of notion that as we grow in character, that suffering is one of the things that um, I started to say is required for us to grow. I don't want to say that in a sort of um, prescriptive tone of voice, but maybe as a descriptive, maybe it's a descriptive reality rather than a prescriptive reality. Um, but it's, um, but James sees it as this is, this is one of the things that we, when we do encounter difficulty, that we, we grow in trying to count what joy might come to us out of that, or count it as joy because of the good that come, can come to us out of the bad. And again, remember, I think it's important for us to draw a distinction between really bad stuff happening. We don't have to make the, the bad stuff good because saying, well, God's up to something. But to say, no, it's bad stuff. And because God loves us, good can come even out of the bad. So we gave, uh, gave you a couple of different uh, exercises uh, to suggest for this past week. One was uh, to try journaling a bit on what good has come to you in some sort of suffering, some sort of trial. What can you find to be grateful for in that trial? And a second kind of exercise we suggested to you that we, we took from the, the, the Buddhists was this exercise of tonglen, the sort of notion of a breathing exercise where you let pain hit you and you let the psychological blunt of the pain hit you. And then as you breathe out, kind of breathe into a space of acceptance or breathe into a space of serenity or breathe into a space of, of seeking to let go of it. And then as you, after you breathe through that for a while, then you, then you expand it so that you let not only your own pain hit you, but you let the pain of other people who have experienced similar things hit you. So that your pain that you experience individually can become a place of solidarity with other people who experience that same sort of pain. And then as you breathe out, you breathe out serenity for them. You breathe out acceptance for them. 
you breathe out peace for them as well. So uh, quickly we'll do a little think pair share. So turn to your neighbor, not your spouse hopefully, uh, and uh, share for about 30 seconds each. Uh, if you did any kind of exercise like that this week or any sort of things that you've done in the past along these lines that you've learned from doing those sorts of exercises. Okay, go. If you can hear me, raise your finger. If you can hear me, raise your finger. That's a brilliant. That works. Um, kindergarten. Kindergarten, yeah. <laughs> Everything you need to learn. Anyone uh, like to share any of your experience this week with any of this? True. I thought about that this this uh, yesterday. Yes. Sorry. But you know, in in college teaching, that's never an excuse. I always tell them if you've got it in the syllabus, you got it. Anything else is grace and kindness on my part. Anybody? Leo, I'll talk about when. Uh, when you were talking about don't wound your brother or your sister that way when you're trying to comfort them and in the in the job fashion where they're saying the wrong thing um that's something in the last year that, that there's there's something i struggle with with trusting god because of a lot of people that comforted me in poor ways um, it's not that you wound them by being a poor comforter in that situation um half the time you don't even remember what they said just that they were there it's that you plant this really wicked lie that God wants to bring you through bad things to help you grow so that later on if you hear that enough you have trouble telling God that you trust him because you think okay as soon as you say that he's been waiting for it he's going to take the gloves off and he's going to hit you for real because he wants to bring you through so and it's just such a lie it's such a good lie too because it's so close to the truth it doesn't even argue with it it just perverts it you know it just puts one thing one step ahead of where it actually is Thank you, Paul. Anybody got thoughts or comments on Paul's? That makes sense. Yeah. I, I don't know that this is true, but I, I, I suspect that one of the reasons that sometimes we fall into the prey of planting that kind of that lie is is in the kind of theologically what I would term kind of a hyper Calvinism, in the sense of that you think God is kind of manipulating everything, and I think that's a dangerous sort of notion. Um, and so if everything that happens is somehow, you know, God's big piece on God's big chessboard that he's been doing ever since the, the Big Bang, it's like, wow, we're really setting ourselves up for some dangerous stuff there and very damaging, harmful feedback to people when they go through hard stuff. Mary? There does seem, um, yeah, anybody else on that? So I have a friend who's going through a miscarriage right now, and then just instead of texting her, like, you know, there's going to be good coming from this, or like, you'll surely God's got a reason for this, I just called her and said, I'm sorry, it sucks. Like, I'm sorry it's happening. And like, 
people that have been through their own uh, pain or loss do a lot better job with that um, and when people have like working with people who are going through some sort of grieving I've just heard so many stories about uh, people saying things that are really kind of born out of their level of discomfort with sitting with someone else in their pain Yeah, and, and uh, it, you know, it may be that, um, I do think that um, kind of pastoral sensitivity, to kind of use a clinical sort of term, pastoral sensitivity can come through, I think, our own, like Tracy was just saying, our own kind of pain <coughs> and experience. Or sometimes we may be in situations where, because we don't have experience necessarily to relate to that one on, you know, that maybe sometimes we just don't know how to handle it and I would suggest that we think of pastoral sensitivity as a skill like almost every other kind of skill and if you don't know how or what to do or what to say um, you know if you if you know somebody who's good at it ask them would you know help me think through how to how to be a, a presence to this person and two I would just suggest realize that you don't have to say Sometimes you don't have to say anything, like many people have already said, right? Just showing up can be really good. And as we said last week from the book of Job, right? Job's friends did really well until they started talking. <laughs> and once they started talking, it went all downhill from there, right? And so just showing up a lot of times is all that may be needed. William? When my, uh, when my mother died, one of the things that really got me out, well, from attending church at that point, because I went through a period of time where I wasn't going to church at all, because when my mother died, I heard everybody was saying, this the Lord's will. And I'm like, man, this can't possibly be the Lord's will. Because me and my mother were so close. And then when uh, my grandmother died, and like, like she, my grandmother was the last person I was really, really living relative that I was really, really close to. At that point, I was like, well, this has got to, well, then obviously the Lord and I are not on speaking terms or, or we, we have a relationship that we need to kind of work through some things. But I'm not going to continue to go to church if this is going to be the result. It took me a long time, but a lot of it is these cliches that you're talking about. Because it's always people that, I know what you're going through with your mom and dad, but your mom's standing right here. How <laughs> 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 can you possibly know what I'm going through? So, I don't know. Yeah, so. And, yeah and so this sort of notion, remember, for, from a Pauline perspective in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, he, he says, the last enemy is what? Yeah. Is death. And even though sometimes death may come as a gift of relief to someone in terrible chronic pain or whatever the case may be, and we can speak in the, I think, legitimately speak in those terms, we must remember theologically configured and pastorically figured, death is always the last great enemy. And the resurrection is about the conquering, the ultimate conquering of death. The resurrection of Christ is the first fruits of the conquering of death, and the resurrection promised to us all 
is the final triumph and consummate victory over death. So anytime we, time we speak of death as God's hand is in that, we've got to be very careful, right? Because that, that's undermining the whole of the gospel trajectory when we speak in those terms. Uh, so anyway, thank you very much for the feedback and thanks for the sharing, those of you who shared from your experience. Welcome, the lovely Lauren King. Good morning. I want to tell you um, a little bit about my experiences with worry. And so often um, when I teach, which is not often, <laughs> so let me back that up. <laughs> I don't teach often, but when I do teach, sometimes I teach and I sit down and I think, did I sound like I was an expert on that? Because I should have led with, first of all, let me clarify that I'm not an expert on this. But on worry, <laughs> I am an expert. Um, and so that's what we're going to be talking about today and how to look at the wisdom literature in the Bible and glean what we can to apply to worry. Um, so first, I want you to do something for me. I want you to close your eyes. And I hope that does not feel uncomfortable. <laughs> so I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to listen to the air that's coming through um, the vents. Listen to that humming sound. Feel yourself inhale. Feel your lungs expand when you inhale. Feel your lungs deflate when you exhale. Feel the hardness of your fanny on the seat and your back. Press against it a little bit to feel that hard chair. Feel your feet stuck to the floor, glued to the floor, grounded to the floor. Press the floor with your feet. Feel your shoulders. Feel the weight of your arms hanging from your shoulders. Inhale and expand. Exhale and deflate. And open your eyes. That is one way of practicing something called mindfulness. Um, that's actually probably my favorite way and the practice I used most I use most often. Um, but there are other ways to practice mindfulness. You can sit in a lotus position, which apparently, <laughs> which I think is, you know, cross-legged, crisscross applesauce with your palms open. Um, you can do breathing exercises where you're counting as you inhale, maybe for four to six seconds, and then you're holding it for four to six seconds, and then you're counting 
to four to six as you exhale again and holding it again. Yes, there are so many. There are different ways to practice mindfulness. Um, mindfulness um, is actually prescribed by the Sermon on the Mount as a way, as an antidote for worry. So I want to read you this from the Sermon on the Mount, one of the pieces of wisdom literature we're studying this semester. So this is chapter 6, verses 25 and forward. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. And then skip on down um, a little bit. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Um, what we see here, or what I see here, um, there are several things going on. We can look at the birds and the flowers and see how God provides for them. But just the act of looking at the birds and the flowers in and of itself is a life-giving practice. And I wonder if you've ever really just sat down and nothing else is on your to-do list except to listen to the birds in your yard. Or sit down with a flower and for no other purpose than to look at the flower and look at how God has clothed the flower and just study the flower. And both of those practices are ways to practice mindfulness and ways um, to get into the present moment and slow your slow yourself down. Um, when you uh, consider the flower or consider the bird that God has provided for. When you go through that exercise, um, it is hard to simultaneously spin in your brain about all that's overwhelming you. Um, what I have found is that it helps me anchor myself a little bit. When I feel myself in the chair, if I just go ahead and Feel, that's my go-to is feel, feel my bottom on the chair. 
when I'm all stressed out at work. I'm overwhelmed. I don't know what to do because I'm almost paralyzed because I have so many things I need to tend to and somehow I can't even get started on them because someone's always coming in to give me something else to do. I can't even write it all down on a to-do list as quickly as it is coming in, much less actually make progress on any of it. And when I start making progress on any one of the things on my to-do list, I can't really make more than a minute or two of progress because my brain switches to one of the other items on my, you know, I open my email to attend to this task, and when I open my email, I see an email that is relevant regarding another task, and I think, well, I need to real quickly register here, and then I'll go back. So it's just this constant, and that list gets so long that on, on bad mornings, I'm just paralyzed. And sometimes I'll call, I have a couple of people I call, I'll call one of those two people, and I'll say, I just can't even think. I can't even think. And what I really want them to do in that moment is something they cannot do. I want them to help me feel better. I want them to somehow, magically, I guess, make it all calm down for me and, and help me say something to make me feel better and neither one of them ever has actually accomplished that for me. <laughs> but both of these people will remind me to breathe, to listen to my breath, to go outside, to listen to a bird, um, to pray, something that, that anchors me in the present. When we can stop ourselves for a few moments like that, and it's only by the grace of God that we can stop ourselves at all, right? I can stay in that spinning cycle for quite so long. Um, as long as I'm in charge, I stay in the spin. Our um, little dog last night, it's so, so cute. He started chasing his own tail, and he was going really, really fast. And we just stood and laughed at him, and he did it for probably 10 or 12 seconds, and it was just adorable. But that's how my brain feels, and it does not feel adorable. It feels crazy. Um, it, it just feels crazy. Um, but when I, when I can stop those wheels by using one of these practices, that's my choice to say that that's my way of saying god i can't i can't get out of this spin cycle please take please take the steering wheel so so practicing mindfulness helps me get there sometimes um, i know when i need it because i start recognizing these kinds of symptoms see if you can relate to any of these um, sometimes i feel prickly in the back of my neck and on my scalp a little bit. Does anyone ever have that? I see a nod or two. Um, I, I start feeling this prickly sensation here, and I know, uh-oh, <laughs> I'm getting overwhelmed. I might, I might be on the verge of some panic. Um, I, am, I am spinning right now, and it hurts. Um, for me, I have experienced, and I wonder if you have too, 
how powerful worry is and how it can even alter your thinking. Um, it has been mind-altering in my life. Um, I, I want to share, without going into too great a detail, that after our third born was born, his name is Ben, he's 17 now, um, after he was born, I had optic neuritis in my left eye. And for those of you who don't know, optic neuritis is a precursor for MS. And so um, I got optic neuritis and I was afraid I had MS. And incidentally, I have a first cousin who has MS and I thought, oh no, I'm sure I've got MS. I Googled it, big mistake. <laughs> I Googled it and saw um, I was in the right age range, having just delivered put me at higher risk. I was the right gender. You know, men do have MS, but it's much more prevalent among women. And I was just positive I have MS. Well. By the grace of God, I had a brain MRI. My parents came with me and my newborn baby and Lee, and we all went and found out, no, there are no plaques on my brain. Um, and I was grateful for that. But within six weeks, I was paralyzed in fear. And I think, in hindsight, I think that being that afraid of a diagnosis um, that didn't come tripped something for me. And I had all this mental energy, all this worry that was pent up and it needed anything to latch on to, anything. So I didn't worry that <coughs> I, would, I would ultimately get MS I didn't worry about some of the things that would have been a little more valid to worry about, like my kids getting hurt or um, car accidents or um, I didn't worry about any of that kind of thing. I worried about something that was too silly to even tell you out loud. It was so, so silly. And I became obsessed with worry about this silly inconsequential thing that I had decided had just wrecked uh, wrecked uh, our lives and it was it was so powerful it just took over my life for about three or four months I couldn't even function um, my mother and my sister-in-law had to take turns coming over to sit with me and help me take care of the children. And I couldn't talk about anything else except spinning in worry about this one thing that at the end of the day wasn't, was neither here nor there to begin with. It was so silly. Um, and so I say all of that to say that I experienced worry in those days as something that made me irrational. I was, um, I had a sense that the world was about to end. I couldn't function. I couldn't make decisions when it was time to go to an event. Um, 
I, I just felt like I can't, you know, I, I don't know what to do. I couldn't even think, and I would ask my husband, should I go to this event? And he would say, yes, you should go to this event. And I would go get dressed and just go to the event. I mean, I couldn't even do the simple, make simple choices. Um, so I've experienced, I don't know how many of you have experienced worry at that level. Um, but it can really take over your life. Um, what I found was that in that experience, and what I continue to find, is that my brain, God made our brains to be quite so powerful, to be quite so energetic. They have quite so much, um, they've got quite so much energy that it needs something to chew on. Um, and I, I have choices about what I can give it to chew on. And when I make the choice to chew on um, a flower, the breeze, um, listening to my breath, I'm occupying my brain and I'm kind of rewiring my brain so it doesn't need that junk food so much that I am in the habit of giving it, inconsequential worries that I will have forgotten about next week. Um, I have choices about what I do with my mental energy and I have to keep it fed or I'll start binging on junk food. Do any of you, if you miss lunch, go home and whatever is sitting out on the counter, <laughs> you consume in, in one, and, and then you, you've ruined your dinner too. So with me lately, it has been Fritos, corn chips. <laughs> and if I don't eat, yeah, if I don't eat enough lunch or if I miss lunch and I go home, I will just start opening cabinets in the refrigerator to find anything that will satisfy me. Again, it's been Fritos corn chips. I can eat three quarters of the bag and then I don't need any dinner either. And I feel terrible, it always feels terrible, but it's like I'm gonna, I've, I've got to stay ahead of my appetite um, or I make really poor choices and it's the same with my mental energies. I've got to stay ahead of my brain's appetite to chew on things and I've got to feed it things and keep it well fed so I don't binge on the unhealthy things. Our dog Otis, again the adorable one, he um, has to have something to chew on. He's 11 months old and he will chew on something. And so if we don't keep enough toys out, he will ruin the corners of our carpets, he will chew up the dining room table legs and the dining room chair legs and so forth. When we um, are sitting at the table, if we haven't put something out for him to chew on, I'm not kidding you, we'll all have a napkin in our lap and all of a sudden your napkin will just disappear from your lap. <laughs> and then you'll hear napkin ripping. <laughs> you don't even have to look, you'll just hear him tearing the napkin, you know, he's, he's tearing it and then he'll trot back under the table and someone else's napkin will disappear. <laughs> then we'll hear the little click and then the tearing again. He's just got, he's got to have something to chew on and we've got to stay ahead of his chewing instinct. So I wanted to tell you different ways you might practice mindfulness or just give you some ideas for practicing mindfulness this week, all of which I have found useful, but you can find lots of different ideas um, from other sources.
Another of my favorite ones is to drive around with all the windows down and the radio turned up. I especially like that after I've worked out at the gym. That feels great. And if it's freezing cold, I turn the heat up all the way. <laughs> and so I've got heat blowing at my feet. I've got fresh air whipping up my hair. And I've got, you know, some silly... Um, 96.3 Jack song cranked up from the 1980s because that's just what that's just one way to to enjoy the present for me um, is that way um, another thing that's that's been helpful to me is in the mornings I don't know how many of you take a few minutes to just sit in the mornings um, if you don't um, I encourage you just to try it, even if it's just for a few minutes. I used to, when I was younger, I used to get up and get in the shower and get ready and go. And if I had time to grab something from the kitchen, I might eat it in the car. Now, um, really the last 10 or 15 years, that is just not an option for me. Unless I have to be somewhere at like 6 in the morning, I cannot start my morning that way because I'll have kind of a little... I'll start spiraling at about 9 or 10 in the morning. I can't do it. And so what I have to do is get up early enough that I have time to have morning time. And sometimes it's reading the Bible, but sometimes it's not. Actually, more, more of my mo mo morning time moments are spent staring out the window. I have a big red chair next to a window. I have a hot cup of coffee in my hand. I'm not even drinking it yet because it's too hot. And I'm just staring out the window and I don't I, I'm not even really focusing on anything but I just have to have that quiet I am not I, I, I just have to have that quiet I encourage you to try something like that if you never have um, finally another way to practice mindfulness may sound counterintuitive um, because it's not quiet and it involves active bi-directional communication but sometimes you can practice mindfulness which again is looking for ways to anchor yourself in the present um, by going to lunch with a friend or calling a friend and then practice active listening to your friend um, and so just this week I felt all overwhelmed at work and I looked at my calendar and it was the date to go to lunch with one of my very best friends. Um, and I thought, man, I should cancel with her. You know, really, truly, I'm almost, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Almost literally, I'm thinking, I've got too much to worry with. <laughs> you have to interrupt your worrying to go to lunch with a friend and hear all about how she is working on her doctoral degree and she just presented a paper that's getting published in a journal and she's going to go speak in California in January and to engage her in that conversation in a meaningful way means I have to listen actively and really pay attention to what she's saying and before I know it I'm all caught up in the present. And when I return to my worries after that opportunity to take a break by anchoring myself in the present, my worries are less powerful. Just like um, if I can stop eating those Fritos for just five or ten minutes, <laughs> it's less tempting if I can just withdraw 
temporarily. Um, some of that hold, that powerful, powerful hold is released. So that's what I'm going to encourage you to do this week, is to look for a way to practice mindfulness. And so like I said, there are just so many different ways. I remember one time Scott Owings had a study of raisin. I don't know how many of you were here for that, but he had us all put a raisin in our hands and we studied the raisin just to look at it, consider where it's come from, study the color, study the texture, smell it, roll it around your tongue. Um, again, find a way to practice mindfulness this week and anchor yourself in the present when you're overcome with worry. Thank you so much. Let me pray to close this out. Lord, I thank you for this class. I thank you for the Otter Creek family. I thank you for this community of faith. I thank you for what you teach us through each other. I pray that you will use us to bless each other this week and to bless others outside of our faith community. I pray that you'll fill us each with your spirit and remind us that we are yours and that you are our creator and help us to rest in you this week as we do the good work you've given us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.